Hi, this is Yulia Pahilko, and you're listening to Live from the Cafe, recorded live at Venture Cafe Cambridge, where innovation is for everyone. The following panel discussion took place during our Social Impact Connect Conference Night. A tech-enabled future holds both promise and anxiety as communities look how to best prepare their workforces, often focusing on STEM education. Frequently, though, the focus on technology and engineering experiences puts too little emphasis on the core math proficiency needed to truly succeed in these fields. The panel discusses the missing M in STEM education. So welcome, thank you all for being here. Um, my name is Marinelle and I, Ruminier, and I am the CEO of Advestors, um, which what I'm gonna do tonight is play the role of moderator, uh, context setter, and data deliverer tonight. Uh, we've assembled a great panel in this room to talk about the topic of the missing M in STEM, um, which is the, the really the need to focus on the challenges of math education and mathematics proficiency that unlock opportunities in the other STE of science, technology, and engineering, and careers in, in Kendall Square and lots of places um, that provide uh, family advancing wages in the city and in other places. So what I'm going to do is just start with a two-minute context of what Advestors is and uh, what our work is that then segues into the conversation uh, more broadly around the panel and have our uh, three panelists introduce themselves. But I'll start with a quick intro. Uh, that Advestors, as I said in the other room, is a school improvement organization. Um, we uh, work in Boston to, in partnership with schools to drive improvement uh, in making sure that there's a quality education for all of our students in, in the city. We work in three ways. We seed fund good ideas, so we act in sort of a venture platform way for educators for, as an open call for their good ideas coming from the classroom. Uh, we spotlight school improvement. We give a $100,000 prize to one of the most improving Boston public schools every year. And then we work at scale around issue areas where there are gaps and white space and we think we can make a difference by bringing partners together um, and new resources to the table. We currently do that around arts education, career pathways in high school, and middle grades math. And it is our middle grades math work, which we call zeroing in on math, that brings us here tonight. Um, in a time when we know the fastest growing jobs in our city and in our region or in STEM, this is a really important issue. And so I'm just delighted to be uh, joined here tonight with by three amazing panelists, uh, Justin Reich, Julie Bott, and uh, Aparna Ryasam, who, who are going to introduce themselves with their name uh, and uh, what your role is, and then one word that describes your relationship to math when you were in eighth grade or 13. Great. Um, so I'm Justin Reich. I'm a faculty member at MIT. I run a lab called the Teaching Systems Lab. Um, we're really interested in the future of how teachers learn. Um, and we're particularly interested in how teachers have opportunities to practice as they are learning. Um, and I loved math when I was in eighth grade. I thought it was super fun. OK. <laughs> My name is Julie Bott. I'm the principal of the Ellis Mendel School, which is a, um, an elementary school in the Boston Public Schools. Um, and in eighth grade, my relationship with math was complicated. <laughs> Good one. Um, hi, my name is Aparna Rayasim. I am a VP Engineering at Akamai Technologies. At Akamai, I run the uh, research and engineering for all of web security products. And eighth grade, uh, my relationship with, was math was off and on. <laughs> 
Great. So you all can think about that question yourself as well as other questions you might have as we go uh, through this conversation. But I want to sort of start with that piece about um, in my intro of sort of the, the M in STEM being kind of invisible. Um, and that's how we see it anyway. We think it gets a lot less attention. And what do you think gets uh, lost or what's at risk when math is overlooked? Or through another lens, why do you think math and math education is so important? You want me to yeah, say? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, I think there's um, it's it's a multi-dimensional uh, problem that manifests uh, in interesting ways. So when um, uh, in the security business, uh, more and more, in fact, in uh, when I compare notes with some of my peers in other industries, we find that more and more we are relying on things like machine learning, data science, AI and uh, other technology the other technology technological tools to assist with our uh, with our solutions now when you scratch the surface and remove all the buzzwords all of these things actually stand for advanced math and uh, what the industry does not have enough of is true math experts so if you if you go back 20 years um, a lot of the complex techniques like a neural network or applying a mathematical model was truly the domain of uh, academia and uh, really the experts in the educational industry were the only ones that could figure that out now with large enterprises like google and facebook there's been a fair amount of democratization of those techniques so now, what you have now is that these these technologies are available. So at some level, they're available where you can apply a model. That's, that's become easy. But what's not easy and what remains ever so complicated is actually figuring out what model applies to what problem. And that is irreplaceable if you don't have pure math fundamentals. So where it manifests, to come back to the nuance, is that where it manifests is more and more companies need these. More and more companies have large engineering machines. Uh, for example, I have a 450-person engineering team. I have a team of something like 20 data scientists. And so just do the, do the math there. Uh, so, And uh, what happens is the large engineering machines are waiting for the brain. Are, are pipelined on the brain. So, and the brain often is the, the, the folks that can sift through large amounts of data. That's the other thing that's happened these day, in the past few years is there's more data available because everybody wants to be data driven. But, you know, the techniques and the understanding of really the math problem that you apply to this data, that is so rare. And so industry innovation gets slow, slows down. And, um, enterprises like ours, that want to move faster because attacks are not slowing down, that want to move faster, we are left grappling at the straws. So you buy commodity software, you buy, you get really anybody that looks like an expert and not, not everyone is. So I think there is a, a pipeline problem and a supply chain problem in many ways uh, that manifests because we haven't really created that awareness and that, uh, that pipeline of math experts who truly can understand and make sense of the data. So. Okay, so if um, Marinelle spoke in the other room about sort of the current data in Boston, um, which I think is reflective of national data, around like a third of students being proficient in mathematics by eighth grade. So if we know that college and career readiness 
really requires students to have uh, be able to you know reason and problem solve on very high levels in mathematics. Mm -hmm. The foundations are starting, um, and I'm working in, a, in an elementary school, right? So early childhood all the way up, and a lot of students come in at three, four, or five years old, um, already having ideas about themselves as uh, mathematicians and learners and thinkers and what it means to be good at math and um, what it means to not be, um, how quickly you get the right answer and how many right answers you can get over and over and over are sort of like what a lot of children in American schools equate with uh, excellent mathematicians and a lot of that is grounded in poor sort of like conceptual understanding of what you're doing and why and a lot of shortcuts um, and so kids burn out real quick uh, so by the time they get to eighth grade when the concepts get harder um, they have internalized that they're bad at math um, and uh, that has terrible implications for college and career future um, and I think the worst implications for students who are already marginalized because of race because of socioeconomics poverty um, whatever other barriers they may be experiencing in life so I mean maybe just to add to that the the alternative to that approach that being good at math is a person who like quickly comes up with the right answer is being good at math is the person who sticks with it who perseveres who struggles um, there's there you know and and this is the case in uh, I think if you if you study math learning across the world um, in in other countries you know what is thought of as being good at math is like being at the board struggling really hard with something not you know getting the right answer really quickly um, so some of these issues as Julie points out are you know very much like identity issues how do we have you think about math in a way that you feel good about the struggles that you're having with math so that you feel good about continuing to persist against these puzzles and things like that and this is probably an obvious point but but maybe just add to that like the, the central importance of math is that it is the it is the gatekeeper to all of these other stem activities um, you know in the absence of you know reasonably firm understanding of algebra one like it's hard to do biology and chemistry and, and physics and computer science and all of these other subjects um, so math really is central to all of the kinds of stem learning that we want students to be able to do just want to jump in with a couple of comments to couldn't agree more um, I think um, just on the comment that you were making earlier I think as a general rule we are uh, we are very quick to judge too there is a there is a sense of instant gratification this uh, you know and I think we tend to reward very quickly in the very early stages of childhood so you figured out yeah you you saw the, you you recognize too that's awesome so you get an award and then so so it it gets uh, i think that the the jump so there isn't enough of a struggle when they're very young when some of the habits are formed um and i think when you switch to something like a middle school when the curriculum suddenly switches one level up then it starts to become either something that you know Either you get that in a second or you don't. And the people that don't, the kids that don't, they, they automatically exclude themselves out of, this isn't for me, I'm for something else. Um, the, the second thing that you said was, um, you know, the, the, uh, there is so much to be said for productive struggle. And uh, you don't see enough of that in the industry as well. You know, not to not to characterize a particular generation or something. You see uh, a certain group of individuals, even in the industry, in at jobs, get very frustrated with themselves if they don't have the answer or they, if they don't um, have the algorithm figured out, the heuristic written down in a day or in a couple of days. And uh, most often we 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 uh, we restate to them: you have to respect the problem. 
if the problem was something that everybody solved in a couple of days then you know we wouldn't need you we wouldn't need uh, so many of us so there isn't that enough of that it's it's almost like because again things like social media and everything else make it sound so easy there isn't enough respect given to patience perseverance And it gets to some more of that uh, as we talk about some of the solutions to this problem. So thank sure. you, Aparna, for flashing forward to that. I'm going to go back to my context setter role for a minute and just provide a little bit of data as we move here, um, sort of in the way in, talked about STEM jobs in terms of uh, where they're headed, right? And we all know this intuitively or based on our, our scan of the landscape, but we know uh, that STEM jobs are not only increasing in number, but in share of employment opportunities, right? So there is uh, more and more opportunities in the range of fields that we categorize as STEM. But we have this, uh, what you might not know is, and might be less clear, is just how very few young people are being prepared for these careers through their post-secondary experiences. So you see um, from about 2.8 million high school grads in 2005, um, you get 166,000 graduates with, uh, with STEM majors. And so that's national data from a couple of years ago, but it really gives you a sense of how leaky this pipeline is and how many places uh, students can step off of it. And, and we know that the current state in the Commonwealth here is not that different. Uh, and in fact, in locally, the gap is, uh, is acute in that STEM jobs here are growing at two times the rate of other jobs in Massachusetts as we look forward. And as we've talked about, one out of three students in Boston, which is our focus at Edvestors, Julie's focus in a micro level in a school, um, but is true in all of our communities, uh, particularly with students of color and, and lower socioeconomic status students. But Massachusetts is like top in the country in terms of our educational attainment. Only half of students in the, in the state are proficient by eighth grade. So it is a problem that is acute when we think about uh, issues of equity, but it is true across the board. Um, and this just gives you a bit of a sense of how that plays out currently in the workplace, that black and Latinx uh, people make up about 13% of the STEM work workforce, and that's in contrast to a city like Boston, where students of color, black and Latinx students, make up about three quarters of the student body. Um, and then when it comes to women, uh, about a quarter of the STEM workforce are, are women. Um, and so it crosses both both gender uh, and race, and, and then you add socioeconomic status in there. We're looking at equity and opportunities to access uh, family-sustaining wages. It's a, it's a significant issue. Uh, so it seems uh, that employers are struggling to really hire that diverse workforce in the STEM fields. And you know we see this math issue, and you all have talked about it being the uh, possibility for unlocking um, opportunities for these underrepresented demographics of, of women and, and black and uh, Latinx young people. Aparna, as an employer and a woman of color in the tech sector, can you think, uh, what do you think about this issue and how it uh, could potentially level the playing field and how? So uh, the, the diversity that exists or the lack of diversity that exists in an, in an average workplace um, is alarming. And um, in fact, the, uh, the, what's more alarming is um, in, as in natural trends, you expect that the gap is getting closed. In fact, the gap is widening. And the gap, uh, uh, by the gap, I mean the gap between the uh, average white male um, and everybody else. 
So in, in the area of technology and in high tech and in security especially, I think there is a, a strong sense of deterrence that a lot of people rule out these jobs because either they seem too complex, maybe maybe media and popular culture make them too, um, too exotic, you know, and not sure what it is. The pipeline that comes into us, you know, we are always looking for entry-level grads um, or a variety of experience, not just someone who has a PhD in applied math or applied computer science, but really um, any variety. The pipeline is very, very dry. So this topic hits very close to home. When you talk about closing the gap, I think there's, there's a few things. Um, you know, as employers, we are very conscious that most employers tend, tend to put in a job description their entire wish list. So if I actually found everyone that had everything on every job description, I, you know, I'm sure I'd have a collection of unicorns. You know, we are looking for, we are very conservative, we look for, we put everything on the job, those job descriptions. And uh, data shows that women of color and minorities tend to look, tend to exclude themselves if they don't fit at least 90% of those criteria. So as a prospective employee, I, my, my suggestion would be don't do, don't do that firstly. Whereas, you know, um, uh, I, the average white male, for example, you know, allows themselves to apply for a position if they are 70% there. So my uh, my suggestion is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at yourself uh, with with more generous eyes, kinder eyes, and then um, look at what the descriptions are. In most of the uh, workplaces, what they're looking for is propensity to solve problems. Um, you know, a proof that you've solved these problems in the past would be great, but if you're able to prove that you're actually interested in solving, you're going to be a committed worker, no matter what the job description says, it sticks. Now, with respect to math itself, I talked a little bit about the, the gap, you know, literally, if I had another, say something like another, uh, uh, you know, twice as many data scientists as I would, Akamai would probably double their profits, you know, and security business, so those of you who don't know, and shameless plug, you know, we've grown 28% year over year for the last eight years, unheard of in the industry. We are the largest cloud security business in the world. And I'm, and I don't think we've scratched at the surface simply because we just don't have the talent. And um, yeah, when I look for now, when we are looking for the, the, the folks that can close the gap, most often it's like, can this person think through a problem? Can they actually solve it? Can they, will they have patience? I don't even care if you don't have programming skills. So, so that's, you know, I think in terms of closing the gap, it will be, the onus has to be on multiple levels. The onus is on the industry to const constantly make sure that we are more approachable and uh, we demystify what we are looking for. Um, onus on, um, you know, uh, um, I guess the support system at large is to encourage people who kind of sort of meet those requirements to go ahead and apply. And uh, education to, to encourage that pipeline to say that it's okay if you don't, if you don't solve it. As long as you know what the problem is and you're willing to pay, to, to take the time, just that teaching those skills of uh, the journey is worth it. I think those are some of the things that I can think of off the top of my head to solve that. It's great. Well, we're going to go back to the front end of that uh, pipeline and talk a little bit about some of the markers. And Julie pointed to this in some of her comments, but there, there's data points that are less familiar even as we entered into this math work. Um, and one, the, the one is sort of the front end here when you have a four or five-year-old, um, what we have learned through the research is 
math and their students' early numeracy skills is the strongest predictor of long-term success, right? So we think a lot about reading in this country and there's a lot of focus on literacy, which is, of course, incredibly important. But in fact, math is the strongest predictor of long-term success. And so getting those early foundations before and in those first moments in school matters a lot. In third grade um, in this country, in our current construct, um, it really bridges from the simple computation, the sort of two and then two plus two, yeah. um, to the real, really the conceptual understanding and more complex work as they move to fractions. Um, and that's a, it's a point that's a, one of those first like make or break points. And then as we've talked about in eighth grade, uh, we know this is a proven gatekeeper to those higher level courses that are um, important to life outcomes, which we'll talk about uh, in a minute because what we also know at that that end piece, uh, as students are leaving secondary school, math achievement predicts uh, future earnings to the degree that um, it's, it has been the highest predictor of long-term outcomes. This chart tells you that um, the predicted increase in the percent of earnings from an additional math class uh, is quite strong. And so, um, for example, if you take calculus, you'll see an almost 13% increase in earnings versus if you stopped at algebra and geometry, it's just an additional 5%. So the correlation here is strong. Uh, some of this is about additional education, but some of it is about purely about those math skills. And what we know is that um, we've talked about proficiency for those young people in communities uh, that have uh, are more high poverty neighborhoods. There's also an issue of access, right? And some of that's about preparedness and some of that's about resources so that uh, schools in high poverty communities are less likely to even offer calculus and physics as opportunities for their students. Uh, so that, that both sides of those equations are things that we need to tackle. So given that, um, you know, given this predictive nature of math and math education, um, across the board of college completion and, and earnings and success in life. I'd just love, Julie, for you to talk about as an education-catered school leader, like why has moving the needle on this issue been so hard? Like what makes it so hard as an educator and what is it about teaching and learning in math um, that's been particularly challenging? Sure, so just sort of going back to the conversation about the gap. Um, which we talk a lot about in, in education in this country. Um, the problem is not, it has never been, and it never will be the children. Children, all children are intellectuals. All children come to school as sense makers, as problem solvers, as thinkers. Like they have natural abilities. How many of you have young children who've picked up your smartphone or your iPad and figured out things that like you don't even know how to do, right? Um, and I watch kids problem solve, not necessarily the problems I want them to be solving, um, but like very intuitively from the moment they enter the doors of school. And, and so if, if the problem is not the children, then the really hard question becomes like, Whose problem is it? And, and, and in schools, it's that we have to sort of turn the mirror on ourselves as educators and ask really hard questions about our beliefs, about who's in front of us, um, about our own content knowledge, about what excellent mathematical thinking. You talked about productive struggle. You talked about perseverance. What does it mean to put a worthy task? What does a worthy task even look like? And what does it mean to put one in front of children and, and create the space necessary for them to show you how they can sense, make, and grapple as opposed to like sort of 
carrying them along the way at the cost of them actually ever doing any real thinking. Um, and then like, what does it look at to train teachers? Um, you know, really ideally, if this was modeled in their own educational experiences, I think that would sort of like come into the classroom, but it certainly wasn't in mine. It was the procedure, the procedure, the procedure memorize. Um, and so, um, even in higher, higher level education as, as, as students are being trained to be teachers, sort of being trained to think about student thinking and sense making this way. Um, and so like coming into an elementary school, a leadership position, you know, having had some of those experiences in math as a learner myself, um, uh, you know, we encountered that in early childhood grades, kids could get the right answer and, um, a lot of them could and many of them could get it very quickly. But when we hit the upper grades and the concepts got more complex and there was a lot of gaps in conceptual understanding, like why is this happening with numbers and, and, and the problem solving required more sort of flexibility, um, kids fell apart, um, and some kids more than others. And then the gaps just get wider and wider. And so um, that really, it became clear that we needed support um, in sort of thinking differently about uh, how we approached the content and how we structured learning so that kids could build the skills and competencies they need to be more successful. Um, and, and I would say, you know, having worked in elementary schools for 20 years, most elementary teachers um, have had intensive training in reading and literacy. Um, and there's all kinds of schools of thought and how to do that, and that's always evolving and changing. It's actually like a lot of literacy and mathematics as well, right? But um, this, like the content knowledge of, of elementary, I think in particular um, teachers, who by the way are often asked to teach multiple subjects with a depth and level of proficiency that is very demanding and takes a lot of time is lacking. And that is not because of, of capacity. It's because of training. It's because of instruction. Um, and so we've, we've had to really invest in, in all of that. Justin, do you have thoughts on that from your vantage point about why moving the needle has been so, so challenging and, and what's particular about it? Yeah, so I mean, you know, particularly the elementary grades. I also I think if you, if you know, canonically elementary school teachers, the number of them who go into elementary school teacher because they're passionate about mathematics is just fewer than the number who are passionate about kids or passionate about reading and literacy and stories and things like that. Um, so there is an enormous infrastructural challenge to help those folks see how beautiful and powerful math is. Um, you know, with I mean, with any of these kinds of educational problems, I think it's really important to think of them as the the schools the systems, the places that do this best, um, you have to get a hundred things right, like there's, or more than that. Like there's not a particular thing to work on. I don't know if people saw a really important set of Boston Globe story, maybe it was one story, but part of a larger thing about educational quality, for instance, about bathroom maintenance um, in the Boston public schools. Um, there are a lot of kids who don't feel comfortable going to the bathroom. Um, it is very, all day at their school. It's very difficult to learn at 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. if you haven't gotten to the bathroom since 8 a.m. Um, and, you know, and some of that is a matter of uh, infrastructure and investment and things. A lot of the schools in the Boston Public Schools are, are, have, were built before the 1940s, um, and so there's work and investment to be made. Like you know, one of the one of the ways that we can imp uh, the long part of that is one of the ways that we could improve math outcomes in schools is having a state and a city that was co committed to having buildings in which people felt good about going there and good about learning. Um, and so there's lots of stuff that you know, and that's just like one of those hundred things. I think teacher training is an enormously important part of that. I think the curriculum that we choose um, for students to use is an, an enormously part of that. I mean, the exciting thing about there being, you know, a hundred things to work on to get better is it really gives all of us an opportunity to find one of those things that we 
really want to be passionate about and committed to and contribute to that. And investors does incredibly important work um, helping people in and around Boston um, figure out how to be connected to the Boston public schools, you know, in part by financial support, but in lots of other ways as well. So before we talk a little bit more about some of the ways uh, folks at this uh, on this panel are trying to tackle these issues, I'd love to pause and see if there are questions. So somebody at some point determined that um, calculus was the top of the math learning period through high school. And I'm not sure when that was determined or why it was determined. But what you talked about is having the time to struggle with math. And the math curriculum, as I see it, has people moving at a pretty rapid pace to get up to and through calculus by 12th grade. And I'm not even sure what the question is so much as how do we give people both the space and create the expectation and perhaps the acknowledgement that competency has been achieved in a certain area so that you can move on, but that you're given credit for that competency and you have the capacity to move even beyond calculus if you're ready for it. Uh, I, I am not an educational expert at all, but I have two kids at home, so I can. I, I did talk to the experts before I ca came in. Uh, so I think this this uh, that's a very interesting point you raised. By the way, um, I think most schools are uh, given an impossible mandate. The impossible mandate is to get kids ready in a multitude of topics by the time they, they hit 12th grade. So you, know, you have to have enough to know about biology. You have to have enough to know about math. So uh, the kids can make an intelligent choice about, about where they want to go beyond 18. Um, and the, so that's the, that's your time, that's your time box. And then you have to cram a bunch of stuff in. So, so a lot of this does not allow for extra, you know, for someone to marinate a little bit if they wanted to. So, you know, I think the answer truly is that is 18. What, what is the sense in 18? You know, uh, why, why must we, why must we block our kids from learning just because a high school diploma requires for you to be, um, you know, so I think what that requires is a, a major reform in how we think of what education really means. And, um, and maybe, uh, for schools to recognize early on some sort of propensity for a particular topic and encourage them, uh, encourage those particular students. And again, we, we go back to what Julia was talking about is, that requires an extraordinary skill, or maybe Justin was talking about, is it requires a um, hundred point skill to understand what it is, what it takes to recognize uh, maybe interest and then encourage that. So, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I think we tend to undersell the role that parents and the, uh, the ecosystem around the kids can play as well. Um, I think more and more parents, you know, if they understand propensity, there are tools available if one cho chose to take them on. That's my perspective. Um, so a couple of things that we've been working with, and we're really fortunate. I actually see one of our coaches in the back. We have some coaches from Edvestors that are doing uh, worth work with our math teachers, and I think in the same way that we want children to see themselves as intellectuals, um, we want teachers to feel that they're treated like intellectuals and that we believe that they are intellectuals and to give them space and time to grapple and to struggle and to take risks and to make mistakes, um, that that's... Um, 
yes, test scores are, are out there, but like that's like when that real learning and thinking happens, it is reflected in the classroom. When they love the content and understand it deeply, it will it will translate for for students. Um, so I think putting um, putting tasks in front of kids that. Um, are worthy of spending time on um, when they have sort of real world relevancy, um, when they're 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 complex enough that like it's impossible to get the answer immediately very early on. I mean, I know we talk about the shift in third grade, but young kids can persevere if there's something that they want to persevere in, right? I think we can agree to this. Um, and so like learning how to critically consume the curriculum and understand sort of the thinking demands of what you're putting in front of kids and how you foster climates and cultures that like really value thinking and risk-taking and like even highlighting beautiful mistakes right and like when that becomes a a narrative of the learning environment of the school um, I think that it can it can have a profound shift over time um, and I I care much less about where we are in the pacing calendar frankly um, although we do need to cover content um, we can't spend all year on fractions, um, but I think like the depth and quality is like really where 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 we get to amazing thinking, and that's that's what school should be about. And there's there's lots of good debates about whether or not we have the right curriculum to support depth um, and coverage. Um, you know the. Uh, uh, a Freakonomics uh, podcast had a great episode recently about calculus as the endpoint of the math curriculum, and it's worth going to listen to that. The, the, one of the cases against it is something along the lines of like statistics and probability for the vast majority of people is just sort of infinitely more useful, um, and to have that be an endpoint would be like uh, like a much more rewarding thing. Uh, you know, if you think if you think about would you, you know like how many people in the world actually need statistics or um, calculus to do their jobs, like maybe it's kind of low, like how many people like need calculus or statistics to be a good citizen? You're like, oh, I would really like citizens to know something about statistics. That would help us an awful lot. Um, so, um, but it, you know, one of the things it turns out is like um, the, the ship of the American curriculum is like very large and hard to move. Um, so you have, uh, I mean, not just, not because, I mean, it's like a little bit hard to print new textbooks or come up with sensible ways of teaching new things, but you, you know, there, there are three and a half million K-12 teachers in the country um, and a substantial portion of those, I don't know what it is, probably two, 2.4 million have, have some responsibility for the teaching of math um, and having them all reorient kind of in mid-flight, that's, a, that's, that's that's, it's, it's a lot to change it's, when you start thinking about like oh well, you know what would, if, if we want if we wanted to if we wanted to help you know all of the teachers currently in the United States be better at math and I don't know we wanted to have each of them you know take two college classes worth of learning on it or something like that you're like oh that would be you know tens or hundreds of millions of dollars that we're not spending right now um, and so those are some of the things that that I mean one, one of the one of the cases to make for the curriculum they have right now is that like people have been working on it for a long time um, uh, so there's there's sort of interesting debate that are in there. And I think that's one of the purposes of these conversations, right, is that they're, they're less conversation about what, you know, should it be statistics, should it be calculus, that sort of like putting math into that conversation um, matters. It's, it's a big ship to turn, but you can't do it without those kind of community conversations that help do that. Take the question. Um, so uh, you're talking about the, um, the traditional school and do you see uh, a role for after-school programs, summer programs, as part of this this shift that needs to happen, or is it just really short in the traditional elementary? I mean, so the uh, the issue with out-of-school enrichment opportunities is that they are disproportionately available to affluent kids. So if you look at the 1970s, 
the gap between the top quartile of earners spending on enrichment programs and the bottom um, quartile of earners spending on enrichment was actually like pretty close. Um, and over the last 30 years, it has just exploded into a yawning gap um, between what the what the nation's most it, um, affluent families spend in their kids. So if there was a way to create an ecosystem of after-school learning um, that was equitably available to all kids everywhere, um, then of course it makes tons of sense to make there be more math available for kids everywhere they go. Um, sort of focusing on that as a strategy in advance of um, of, of dealing with those broader ecosystem. I mean, one issue is like, at least in theory, we have a belief in this country that all kids deserve a right to an equitable in-school education, and we totally fall down on that belief. Um, but we don't even really have a belief that all kids deserve equitable access to museums and after-school programs and things like that. Um, so we don't have a belief in an equitable ecology of learning around kids. Um, but we should. That would be a great thing for us as citizens to, to advocate for. Um, there's a wonderful... Uh, um, uh, researcher Nicole Pinkard at Chicago, um, who has this line, which like you can you can only you can only want to be what you see. Um, and so part of what she has done is these sort of community mapping exercises. Like she mapped um, the number of basketball courts in the south side of Chicago versus the number of sort of com computer labs and makerspaces. And there's just way more basketball courts in the south side of Chicago than there are um, computer clubs and makerspaces. Like if, like if we want kids to aspire um, to those kinds of opportunities, there have to be places around where they can go and see these things happening. And I'm sure if we did the same exercise in Boston, um, we would find that, that the place where you could see that opportunity are concentrated in some parts of the city and not nearly as available in others. And I would just add to that um, that while you're right on the system piece, there's a belief, but we're far from that, that aspiration around equity, and, and that's what drives us at Edvestors. But there are a number of important examples of folks that are, are trying to get at that other 80% of time that students um, spend uh, in their waking hours. And one of them, uh, our partner Adrian Mims, is here from the Calculus Project, who does work in the summer and after school trying to prepare students to get to those places. We're here in Cambridge, so uh, the work of Bob Moses and the Young People's Project and Algebra Project are other examples that, that are not at the system level and, and your gap around Bob Putnam's work and so forth is right on the money, but there are there are bright spots that we can look to um, because it has to be a, a, an ecosystem approach. So I'm going to, we'll have a, some more time for questions at the end, but I want to get to uh, sharing some of the other ways that we're going about this. We highlighted a couple of those out-of-school time programs and um, that tutoring and additional support. Um, uh, there are many ways to support those closing of those gaps. Um, the way uh, I know we at Edvestors and, and Justin and his teaching system's work uh, is looking at is really around um, the, the leverage point of teachers and what's possible um, when you have a, a focus on those individuals who have the greatest impact on student outcomes. Um, so that has been the driver of, of our work at Edvestors, um, that having an adaptive teacher with with skills and knowledge and pedagogy, and even thinking about the conversation we've had in this room, which I think is new to many people, that math should be not about the right answer um, or the algorithm, but about things like productive struggle and problem-solving perseverance, like that's groundbreaking. And so to be able to bring that kind of thinking to teachers, to have them do math, um, understand math in a deeper way, uh, and, and be able to bring that to their students, 
um, and which gets you at, at some some scale potentially is is certainly what's driven um, some of the work that we do. Uh, this is a, a, a visual. I think there's some papers in the back you can take because it's a little bit hard to read from here. But what it uh, focuses on this sort of citywide um, and broader here in Cambridge and beyond uh, advocates uh, for math. So really building a community of folks who, who care about this issue and are, are advancing it um, to close skill, skill and knowledge gaps on the part of students. So students um, often in a classroom, Julie can tell you this, she lives it every day, you'll have a fifth grade classroom and you'll have students who are at a first grade level in math and students at a seventh grade level. And how do you provide tools to, to teachers to be able to meet students where they are and bring them along um, that has the kind of depth and, and uh, fidelity around the conceptual knowledge they need and then really working with those teachers around deepening their, um, their instruction. Uh, and we've been doing this work uh, in Boston in 19 schools with about 150 teachers, uh, impacting almost 4,000 students, have some really encouraging results in terms of the additional uh, math learning that students are demonstrating beyond the year you'd expect in any, in any one uh, fourth grade year, um, and uh, hearing from teachers about the change that has been possible. Um, so this sort of human capital approach uh, and is the core of our strategy, and I'd love Julie just to talk a little bit about, you know, what she's seen over the over the time that she has been focusing on this issue of math, which is not all that common in our 125 buildings in Boston, and I think in the buildings across Massachusetts. So actually, I started my day yesterday at 7 a.m. with my uh, faculty. We do professional development before school um, and um, doing doing math. So I think one thing that's been really powerful um, in the work with Edvestors is um, like part of like knowing what an excellent task looks like and think, thinking about the thinking demands that you're putting in front of kids is actually experiencing that, self, that yourself as an adult um, and actually going through that process and then thinking about um, all the misconceptions that students might grapple with along the way and what you're going to do when you encounter those. Um, and so a lot of the coaching that my teachers have um, experienced and development that they've experienced um, through their work with um, the team and investors has been doing exactly that. So the, um, like the quality of adult learning experiences that adults engage in directly impacts the way in which they facilitate thinking in the classroom. And I think that's been modeled from start to finish. Um, and I think something adaptive that I saw, um, we talked about last year when you all came to visit the Mendel was, um, that like a lot of traditional curriculum and, and sort of pedagogical approaches is the teacher is the content expert. And so they're going to show the student the strategy or the concept that they want them to replicate, right? And then the students are going to do it with you. And then the students are going to do it independently. And then one or two kids are going to share. We call that I do, we do, you do. And so sort of thinking differently about that, that like if there's a trust and belief that children are sense makers, are problem solvers, are, co are collaborators, that if you put a worthy task out in front of kids, that all kids bring something to that problem, right? They have an entry point to that problem. If they're at a first grade level or they're at a seventh grade level, you have to think about that access point, but there is a, a way in. Um, and that if you really know the content well and you really know what misconceptions you want to highlight or what you want to illuminate, then in the closing of the lesson, you can be really strategic in who you call on, and students can make connections from and with each other and build upon each other's ideas. And that and that sort of helps to teach and reinforce the concepts, uh, and is frankly way more interesting to children to hear from each other than to hear from you. 
So I think those are some, some really great like adaptive shifts I have seen happening in terms of the pedagogical approach. And we do instructional rounds in my building, which means we visit classrooms. And so when my upper element, my lower elementary teachers started to walk into my upper elementary classrooms where the coaching was happening and see students having seminars and discussions about their thinking and pushing each other's ideas and sort of the teacher in front of the room a lot less and doing sort of more questioning and coaching as opposed to like sort of directing and modeling. They were frankly blown away and then almost really angry that they didn't have, sorry, uh, they didn't, they didn't have access to that kind of coaching and thinking. And so now we're trying to roll that out across the whole school. So. And Justin, I'd love to talk, for you to talk about your work, uh, in the MIT systems lab, uh, teaching systems lab and, and what that looks like, right? These are different approaches to getting to that core human capital problem. Uh, one of them, Pretty people intensive, and the other one we'll hear more about. Yeah, yeah. Ours is still people intensive, yeah. but I, you know, I think what Julie described—two components that are pretty well established in research to help math teachers get better at teaching math—and the first is doing more math, especially amongst elementary teachers who may not have as much experience, and then some form of individualized coaching. Those are sort of two of the things that we're pretty sure um, that, if done well, help people get better at math teaching. Um, one of so, and we're at MIT, and so we're often trying to think about like, well, what's another thing that we. Can could do that would be helpful, especially along the lines of the spirit of you know getting a hundred things right to solve a problem. Um, so one of our observations is that when teachers learn, they have insufficient opportunities to practice. Um, so when teachers learn, they listen to people talk about teaching, and sometimes they talk with each other about teaching, and every once in a while they say what they would do if they were teaching, um, but they actually very rarely do teaching. Um, this is in contrast to how people in other helping professions learn. So if you were to follow social workers as they learn to be social workers, they're like therapists therapizing each other constantly. It's just sort of therapizing back and forth, being therapized sort of all day long. Um, uh, not talking abstractly about therapy, but doing it. Um, teachers have less of that opportunity. I and mean, they sort of go into classrooms or practical classrooms and actually teach, but they very rarely have these sort of safer, low-stakes ways to practice what they're doing. Um, so that's what we're trying to generate in our work. What it looked like to create a series of practice spaces. Um, for us, these are sort of inspired by games and simulations that would let teachers rehearse for and reflect on important decisions in teaching. Um, so one of the things, if you want to elicit the kind of rich conversations that Julie's talking about that you have to be able to do, um, is you have to be able to come up with really good questions on the fly. Um, you have to be able to like have a set of strategies that you can go to, and then as students are saying different kinds of things, sort of respond to those strategies. Well, if you like talk about those strategies, and then you send people into the classrooms to to do them, um, kids do not like immediately make it easy for you to execute those strategies. They like clam up, or they say weird things, or other <laughs> kinds of stuff like that. And so, what we want to try to create, and the other thing is like you've only got 47 minutes that you've devoted to math, and so if things aren't going that well in the first like you know 140 seconds or something like that, you go, ah, or right, maybe I should just go back to telling them. Maybe I should just go back to I do, we do, you do. Um, so we're trying to create these learning environments um, in which you could take a set of of discrete important skills and practice them over and over again in safe, constructive ways. So we have a group of 20 math teachers, um, third through eighth grade teachers from throughout the city of Boston, um, who are working on co-constructing these practice spaces with us. Um, in the fall, we've been working with a tool we developed called Eliciting Learner Knowledge, um, which is a sort of paired, synchronous, chat-based game. So one teacher plays the role of a teacher um, and has a card that tells them what they're trying to figure out about what a student knows. Um, another teacher plays the role of a student, has a little card that says what it 
is that they do know about a topic, which is incomplete in some kind of way, um, and then they spend seven minutes in a chat-based interface um, practicing asking questions. Um, so in an afternoon, we can have people do this three, four, five, six, seven times. Like they can sort of do a bunch of reps of question asking, practicing. They have a transcript that gets generated afterwards, and they can go through and be like, you see these things that sort of look like questions? They're not actually questions. They're like telling people things. Um, and then you see these things that are questions that are like eliciting and probing and getting different, you know, and also we, you know, we can, in the midst of these rounds, we can show you, you know, here's a strategy that's called revoicing. Um, this is when you just like say what the person said and ask them if you got it right. Um, that's a strategy you can use. Um, go ahead and try that in your, in your chat practice. Um, and uh, um, so we don't know whether or not this element of, of intensive practice is going to help add to learning more about math and coaching, but that's uh, the kinds of thing we're working on. We have another one that we're going to be doing with folks uh, this spring that's called Teacher Moments. It's a sort of a digital clinical simulation tool. Um, so it's something that's meant to be played on a handheld device by yourself. Um, so where basically you pull out your phone and you would be immersed in these little vignettes of classroom life. Um, so you know you would uh, pose a question and then a kid kind of pops up and says like here's here's what I would say in response to that thing and then a microphone icon pops up and you have to say what you would say to the kid in that moment um, and try to get you to practice um, responding to mis common misconceptions or thorny circumstances that come up or those kinds of things. Um, over time, we want to sort of build more tools that have the, 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 the interface sort of automatically provide some feedback. Like, oh, Julie, you sounded a little hesitant with that one. Like, do you want to try that again? Here are three sentence starters that you might use in this particular scenario to help you out. Um, but this, this notion of trying to make teacher learning more practiceful is something that we're working on. Um, and not, you know, trying to do it in a way that it's not, um, we sit around in our offices in, at MIT and think about what would be helpful and, and then ship it out to other people to test, but to really sort of co-design them with teachers in the Boston Public Schools who understand their local context much better than we do, um, to be able to, to co-design together what, what this practiceful approach might look like. We have time for one or two more questions. Are there other questions out in the audience? So you can answer uh, the, the question, Julie and, and Aperna, but I'll give you a sort of a, a different spin if you choose. Uh, so it's choose your own adventure. Uh, you pointed to Justin like some things to be hopeful about, and you said like here's a place we've made progress. Like are there things that you see that are are hopeful from your vantage points as we close out? Um, I, I think that one thing that was really exciting for me was um, not just like seeing the the way in which students were engaging and leaning into sort of the grappling in, in, in math class, but like actually when you sort of talk to them outside of math, the way that they talked about math class, um, children who like previously were, th I'm not even kidding, like throwing chairs across the room, right? Like they were that disgruntled with the concept of engaging in math. Um, like really um, spoke positively of the subject and more importantly of themselves in it. And sort of uh, there's 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 stories about sort of there's the tale of two math students and it's the same student. It's just a different teacher and a different learning experience and um, and 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 how that profoundly changed the way the child saw themselves. Um, so for me, I think you know um, there's many symptoms of that, but like seeing and hearing kids talk about themselves as mathematicians and sense makers and problem solvers and um, aspiring to careers in fields beyond um, what, what they may have previously, um, already talking about that with excitement and interest and enthusiasm. I can't wait for math class um, in a couple of years is like pretty, pretty profound for me. So I want to leave you with three thoughts. Um, just following up on what Justin said, 
a productive struggle at being patient is not a nice to have in the industry it's 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 it truly determines if you actually progress if you actually sometimes hold on to a job or not because uh the easy problems uh for anyone that's under a misconception the easy problems are mostly solved um you know large enterprises are working on the very complex ones and that's really the only place where they can actually make uh, progress uh so that's one thing is that we must as a society just reward that um although you know for the kids that actually don't have to do the have the productive struggle you don't want to shortchange them of recognition but uh uh i think uh, th th there is some of th uh, the fact that we are recognizing that here and across the industry that uh, you know that's the only thing that gets rewarded is something that we should we should reinstate reinforce the second thought that i will have everyone think through is um you know it does not matter in the industry it does not matter what kind of a career this is so i have a good friend of mine who's been recently trying to recruit me this person is at broad institute they're working on um uh i think they're calling the 1 million um uh gene genome project basically the project this person has three medical degrees from the top schools in the world stanford yale and harvard and this person's a uh, 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 a reputable veritable name in the industry in the medical industry and they're working on um making cardiology especially and medicine much more intelligent what they told me which which was shocking was like was that uh, most of modern medicine especially cardiology is really based on four indicators four data points do you have diabetes do you have blood pressure and these things and based on that literally everything that your uh, your uh, doctor advises you is uh, goes from there what they are working on is to map data from literally everything else from from what you do on a day to day basis on to something like you know uh, how you think how you process for multiple years so they are collecting data from a million individuals across america they have something like 500000 they are collecting more data and their hope is that uh, science truly will advance only when they understand that data and distill so it, it, the myth that you know only in an esoteric career depends on math needs to be needs to be thrown out even your most relatable careers have a strong math component the uh, when you talk about something that to to feel good about this is finally hitting most organizations and in many ways industry where it hurts so most companies that have this kind of talent are able to make progress and those those that don't are not so um, as, as always the industry is usually slightly late you know late to to the game but it is starting to hit so more and more i see even within my organization and other organizations they're willing to participate in programs that talk about early learning participate in something that helps you know early schools and so early school education akamai for example participates in girls who code we we have a great emphasis on getting kids high, as as young as middle and high school into programming so my request to edu educators and uh, in um, uh, folks in that area is to enlist uh, industry professionals because this isn't a nice to have this isn't something that we get credit for community service this is survival for the industry as well so um and i because of that i see a lot of hope you know i i'm sorry to be cynical but i think because it's finally hitting the point where it hurts i i see this there'll probably be movement well Please join me in thanking all three of our panelists who are terrific.
know, as you all talked about, part of t tonight was really this piece of raising awareness and, and really thinking about this issue and getting more people to think about the issue. And we'd, we'd welcome at Edvestors, I know Justin and, and Julie and Aperna would welcome conversations about our individual approaches to this work. There's some materials at the back. Um, please feel free to take them and please feel free to grab any one of us to chat a little bit more of this, but about this. But I'm, I'm glad you're all here. I hope you bring this conversation home um, about this issue and uh, I've appreciated spending this hour with all of you. Thank you, and thank you again to the three of you. Live from the Cafe is produced and disseminated by the Venture Cafe Foundation, a nonprofit organization striving to better connect the innovation community. To learn more about our events and resources, please visit us online at VentureCafeCambridge.org or come visit us at One Broadway in Cambridge, Massachusetts every Thursday from 3 to 8 p.m.